As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Feels like the last dance we for Gareth Southgate's got off to a good start. And there is his immortal moment. Harry Kane's 54th goal for England. I think in my age you cannot think future, you think present, even if I'm the past, present and the future. I suspect that Luis Enrique is going to be the favourite. Uh, I know that uh, Fabio Pratici likes him. It's just a question of whether Pratici is allowed to make the decision with Daniel Levy kind of looming over. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. I'm Dan Bardell and this is the Weekend Preview. I'm joined by George Ellick, Bet365, Steve Freeth and we've got a Weekend Preview debut for Nick Miller today as well. Harry Kane makes England goal-scoring history as the three Lions opened up their European qualifying campaign with a win in Italy. We'll look ahead to Ukraine's visit to Wembley too, as well as discuss the state of play in the Premier League. That's all to come here on the Weekend Preview. And there is the full-time whistle. England have won in Italy for the first time since 1961. Harry Kane with his record-breaking goal, in the end, the difference. And for the sixth European qualifying campaign in a row, they begin with a victory. Well, that was a fairly wild night. So much international football can be dull, particularly outside of the major tournaments. No real excitement, tension, drama tonight in Naples was certainly dramatic and for England it's ended with a first competitive win over Italy since 1997, the first victory away to Italy since 1961. On top of that Harry Kane scored his 54th international goal breaking Wayne Rooney's record to become England's all-time record goal scorer. It's Kane from the penalty spot again and there is his immortal moment Harry Kane's 54th goal for England and he is 
England's all-time record goalscorer. The performance, well, what was it Sven Joran Eriksson used to say? First half good, second half not so good. And the first half really was good, maybe not in terms of fluency, but certainly the way England defended and the way they broke between the lines with Jude Bellingham getting forward well in support of Bukayo Saka, Jack Grealish and Kane. They were deservedly 2-0 up at half-time, should have been 3 really. And then a poor start to the second half, conceding a sloppy goal, and they were left hanging on. And the ball retention wasn't good enough, a lack of real composure under pressure, and it all became rather frayed. But despite losing Luke Shaw to a red card, they rallied and dug in and hung on for a pressured victory, which is the perfect start to their qualifying campaign for next year's Euros, with Ukraine up next at Wembley on Sunday. And it's also a really welcome result for Gareth Southgate, because goodness knows how people would have reacted had they drawn this game from 2-0 up. Fair to say I've seen much better Italy teams than this one, but I've also seen far worse England teams. Much, much, much worse. And I can't really understand why so many people still have a downer on this England team or this England manager. They must have very short memories. The Athletics' Oli Kay there, out in Naples, watching as England beat Italy 2-1 to start their Euro 2024 qualifying campaign. Before we talk about the football, I need to talk about the national anthem. <laughs> Did any, what, what on earth was going on in the, in the national anthem? Nick, you know when on BBC News grabbed that guy seemingly off the street to talk about Apple and he came <laughs> in and he was absolutely nothing to do with Apple. It felt like the person who was singing the national anthem for England last night, it was exactly the kind, same kind of situation. It was bizarre. No, you, you can't be gold every time. You've got to give some people who perhaps haven't got the most natural talent the chance, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it was very, very strange. And then the Italian national anthem was this, I don't know, rap version of the, of the Italian national anthem as well. So the national anthem's got the game off to an absolute flyer. But George, Harry Kane did overtake Wayne Rooney's England's all-time record scorer. That's 54 goals now. 18 of those have been penalties. And again, I'm going to talk about the build-up to the game here. I don't know whether you saw the the, the build-up where there was an interview with Gareth Southgate and Harry Kane reliving the, the World Cup. And you could almost see he looked haunted waiting for the penalty to be shown to him on the screen. It was nice to see him exercise those penalty demons and stick an important one away last night. Yeah, and some poetic justice in it as well. When he was asked if he'd watched it again, he kind of looked very sheepish and very un-Harry Kane-like. Mm. Uh, and he said he'd seen on social media, hadn't deliberately watched it back. And he kind of looked uncomfortable having to, to sit there and do it. I think there is something, um, you know, the last time we saw Harry Kane in an, England, in an England shirt was missing that penalty against France, what is it, 103 days ago. Um, the closest Harry Kane has come to winning a major tournament trophy was when be, being beaten by Italy on penalties. So for him to go to Italy to get the record scoring a penalty, I think normally you know, winning a record with a penalty might be an underwhelming way to do it. But I think there's a lot of things that tied into this being quite a special way for him to do it and, and a great penalty too. And, you know, you could see how much it meant to him. Um, he's always a, a, a player who looks to enjoy scoring goals, always celebrates pretty wildly. Um, but it's rare that you see such an outpouring of emotion uh, from him really, you know, screaming in the corner, turning around and, and you could see how much his teammates wanted to rally around him as well. So, it was a great moment. It was a great first half. I was sat, sat there during the first half as somebody who you know, staunchly tries to defend Gareth Southgate wherever possible, then gets incredibly frustrated with him in between major tournaments and then goes back in the, in the cycle of, of supporting him again during a tournament. Um, I couldn't help but feel like if, say, he had moved on and that was that first half was under 
a Thomas Tuchel or a Maurizio Pochettino, you'd have a lot of people on social media saying, look what happens when you get rid of Southgate and you replace him with an attacking-minded manager because it was, the shackles were off. We looked really entertaining. Italy couldn't really live with us. But the one caveat to this, you know, a lot has been said about Italy's record at home in European qualifiers, about England's inability to beat Italy away from home. If you look at Italy's results at home since beating England at Wembley on penalties in the Euros final, um, they have been beaten by North Macedonia at home in Palermo. They've been beaten by Spain at home in Milan. And they were held to a one-all draw at home against Bulgaria, all in competitive games uh, in Florence. So, you know, it, it's not a great Italy side and we've got to remember that. But even so, despite the second half performance, and I think you're going to come under pressure when you're 2-0 up away from home and you've got players of the quality of, you know, a midfield three of, of Barella, Jorginho and, uh, and Verratti. You know, it's going to be hard not to come under some pressure, but to come away with the three points, to, to see it out with 10 minutes to go with 10 men without really conceding any any chances. Yeah, it feels like the last dance for, for Gareth Southgate's got off to a good start. It might not be the last dance, George, from from the noises coming out of St George's Park at the moment. There might might be a few more if, if the Euros goes well. Steve, I made the mistake last night after after Harry Kane had scored of, of calling him world class, and of course got a lot of tweets back saying you can't be world class if you, if you haven't won a trophy. But it's undoubtedly a, a world class striker, surely, isn't, isn't he, Steve? Just absolutely superb, and now England's best ever goal scorer. Yeah, there are a few bets that have landed down with him. You know, managing to do that. You know, a, a number of years ago, we had a market on on, on him breaking Wayne Rooney's record and, and, and getting fifty-four or more. So there are a number of bets being settled today. Incidentally, he's eight to fifteen now to break Alan Shearer's Premier League uh, goal-scoring record as well. So he's well on the way to that. And I was actually I didn't watch the game last night. Then I, I was listening to it on the radio um, on the way home on the way home from Edinburgh. Actually, so it was a long old journey down the M6 and. Uh, like you, I was also the guy I was with, kind of looking at each other, looking at who the hell singing these national anthems. So I, I absolutely ag- agree with you on that. But yes, the talk about, I don't know if redemption's a big word for what's happened previously to Harry Kane at previous tournaments in Italy as well, but it was uh, it was great to see. Great result for the punters as well. And unsurprisingly, Dan, despite, I, I don't know whether 1961 was trending last night, but everywhere, everywhere I go, I can't get away from 1961. Every, every report talked about 1961. England were actually favourites to win the game last night in Naples, despite of this horrendous um, you know, form they have away to the Italians. And, and, and the group stage now is looking fantastic for England. Previously, they were 10 to 11 to top the group. They're now 4 to 11. We were 25 to 1 about them winning every single group game. They're now six to one to do that. They're they're odds on to go unbeaten, as they always seems to do. Seem to do in these qualifying stages as well. So we might as well just shake hands now and say England are going to top the group. I would say. Yeah, off we go to Germany in 2024. Nick, it was a, it was a really astute performance from England, particularly in that first half. Declan Ross scored the opening goal and was a big part of that in midfield. And the Calvin Phillips selection was probably a bit of a surprise, given that he's barely played for Manchester City all season. But actually, by having a more defensive player in there. That enabled Rice to do more of the things he's good at, as well as as well as completely freeing Bellingham up. Yeah, and there's, there's obviously been a lot of talk about um, Declan Rice and his kind of goal scoring record and whether he should be doing more as a defensive midfielder. But he's, he's sort of, it feels like he's not really a defensive midfielder. He's, he, he does that job at West Ham, but then he does because there's no no one else to do it. Um, he has to do that and everything else. But it's one of those kind of games that proves that it, when you saw the team, you could sort of theoretically think. It's relatively conservative midfield. You kind of get frustrated a little bit. Um, like George, I'm a big fan of Gareth Southgate, but also get frustrated with him sometimes. But then 
the performance and how aggressive and how um, sort of coordinated the pressing was at some points in the mm. first half is just kind of proof that you don't necessarily need to play, you know, five attackers or whatever to have uh, an attacking team. And, you know, England probably should have been more than two and a lot at, at, at half time. But yeah, it was, um, it, it was always going to be so very different uh, after half time. But that first half is you know, enormously encouraging. Despite that good first half, Nick, are you, is it a little bit concerning that the goals came from a, a set piece and a penalty? Mm, not not massively, I don't think. Even though, as we've said, Italy are a um, uh, not as good as even as they were a couple of years ago when they when they won the Euros. It's still the toughest game in the group. Still one of the toughest games that England could get in the the, the qualifiers. Um, so you kind of take goals whichever way they come, really. Now, David Ornstein's reporting this week that Liverpool have fallen behind Real Madrid and Man City in the race to sign Jude Bellingham. Slightly worrying last night that he was playing with uh, with something on his knee and he, and he went off and looked like he was struggling. Steve, what are the bookmakers saying about his next club? Well, what a market this is, Dan. This is this has fluctuated quite a bit. And I suppose whenever Ornstein speaks, you kind of react to it as well. So we have some big prices. Real Madrid have been 8-1 to one back in December. They're now 7-4 to favourites, Real Madrid. Manchester City are current second best at 2-1. to one. They were 8-1 to one in, in January. And Liverpool are third best currently at 3-1. to one. And they've also been a massive price as well. Me personally... I think these prices are wrong and I'll probably tweak them shortly. I think Manchester City should be favourites. I think I think Jude Bellingham goes to Manchester City. I wouldn't be surprised to see him uh, sign the, uh, the centre-off uh, Guardiola as well uh, this summer. I think it's going to be a huge summer. He, and it, of course, he's you know, everyone waxes lyrical about him and rightly so. Um, we were 100 to 1 for him to be player of the uh, tournament at the World Cup to win the... Uh, to win the Golden Ball. I'd imagine Euro 2024, he will probably be the favourite to be the best player at Euro 2024, such is the quality that we've seen. He's also bringing goals to his game as well. So Real Madrid, the current favourites, but don't be surprised to see Manchester City favourites to sign Jude Bellingham this summer very soon. Yeah, I don't say, say this too often, Nick, but I think I agree with Steve on, on, on Jude <laughs> Bellingham there. I think Manchester City, it may be just all coming together and opening up for them. What, what's your thoughts on where he ends up next? Where will he be playing in Euro 2024? Obviously for England, but for club team as well. There's <laughs> a lot of pain in your eyes there, agreeing with Steve in that one. Painful. Um, Manchester City seemed the most sort of likely place. I was always slightly curious as to, wondered why Liverpool were such strong favourites. It's not just that they might not qualify for the Champions League this this year, but they're, whether Jurgen Klopp stays on or not, they're, they're a club with going through a bit of a transition and Bellingham's seems to be a very smart guy who advised very smartly as well and choosing his, he obviously chose Dortmund very carefully and he, he, he feels like he's going to, he's someone who is going to think about a lot about his next move. So Liverpool in the current state that they are, did seem quite a strange destination and, Really, for the for, for the lack of anywhere anywhere else that he might go, anyone who a might be able to afford him and b haven't got kind of massive areas elsewhere in their team that they need to spend that money on, City just seems like the logical choice. That what I would say this market is for um, Jude Bellingham's club on the first of September, twenty twenty three. So we also include Dortmund in this market, who are, yeah. cur- who are currently seven to one. Um, I mean, I mean that could be sixty six to one. We we don't really know. Um, it's a tough one to call with Dortmund, and then we have Manchester United at fourteen, Chelsea at sixteen, PSG the same price with Newcastle and Bayern Munich both at twenties. Right, you, I think Nick raises a valid point there, George. That you know he picked that last club so carefully, his family heavily involved. If Liverpool feel a little bit in flux, 
Real Madrid, potentially, you don't know who the manager will be next season. They may change head coach. So Manchester City are settled. They've got Pep. Gundogan will perhaps move on in the summer. So there's a space opening up there organically for him. He's got England teammates at Manchester City as well. Like I've said to Nick, it does feel like it's coming together for a Manchester City move. But then also they'll probably say something different this week and <laughs> negate everything I've just said. But with City, it's interesting because he's got two international teammates who both made the move from, don't want to say smaller clubs down with you on the, on here, but you know clubs of a, of, of a smaller it. standing to Dortmund fairly recently to, to kind of enhance their career. But for Jack Grealish, it's, it's clearly worked where despite facing criticism in his first season, his support from the club was, was unwavering. Pep Guardiola certainly never had any doubts and he's now having a, a, a brilliant second season and looks to be an even better player than the one who left Villa. For Calvin Phillips, it's been a different story. Now, of course, injuries have played a massive part. And even though I think he was entitled to be very rusty last night, and I was surprised how long he actually was kept on the pitch by Gareth Southgate, uh, he looked good on the ball, but miles off off the ball, like really slow. And you have to wonder now, is Phillips realistically ever going to be an option to compete with Rodri for that for that holding midfield role? I can't really see it. I think he's just so far behind him now, especially physically, that for him to, to make that back up is going to be really difficult. So you've got a career that might be stagnating. And in my mind, I'd, I'd, I'd be surprised if Calvin Phillips ever becomes a, a regular starter for, for City under Pep Guardiola. And then in Jack Grealish, you've got somebody who's who's taken the, you know, taken the move in an area where City are well stocked, where he had to bide his time, where he's been out of the t- out of the side for a long time, but is now flourishing, you have to think that Bellingham has easily enough about him to uh, t- to probably come into City and start immediately. But whether he fits into the system, we know that City are in- incredibly possession based. We've seen them take players before. You know, you've got to think Rodri at Atleti played a very very different role to the one he now plays at City, where he's now the player that gets on the ball more than any other in the Premier League. Whereas at, at-, at Atleti, that wasn't the way that they normally played under Simeone. Bellingham at Birmingham, you know, Birmingham were a side who rarely in the championship were possession heavy. He touched the ball about 20 times per game. And at Dortmund, again, they're a team who play best in transition and that really suits him. Is he going to be suited by going into a side where suddenly he's going to have to be far more, you know, his wings are going to have to be clipped a little bit in terms of his creative freedom and his ability to carry the ball? Because there's no room for two Kevin De Bruyne is really in a side and he's given that free role to basically be the only player in, the, in a City shirt who doesn't have to be that positionally disciplined and doesn't have to basically play the percentages the majority of the time. I'd, I'd love to see him play for a manager who encourages him to take more risks, whether that is going to a, a Real Madrid side, whether Ancelotti will be there or not next season, we don't know. Or under Klopp, who we know will, will enable him to, to maybe play with a bit more creative freedom, but at the same time, probably... Um, not be such a, a polished player at the end of it. He, he's an unbelievable talent. I don't think we'll have too many issues about where he goes. But I, I would be surprised if he chooses City purely on the basis of, you know, of their standing in European football. I, I, you know, I, I do think given his talent, he'll look to go wherever he thinks will, will suit him best for his development. He's only 19. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah. And let's finish this segment by congratulating Calvin Phillips on his PFA Player of the Year award in 2024. Because you can't say anything on this show without without the opposite happening. This is the Weekend Preview here on the Athletic Football Podcast. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. 
Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hi everyone, how you doing? It's Tim here. Sorry I'm not with you this week. I'm currently in Stockholm in a nice little cafe in the centre of the city uh, ahead of Zlatan Ibrahimovic's return to the Sweden squad tonight at the ripe old age of 41. Uh, which is obviously a massive talking point here. Um, he's been out of the squad for a year, and yeah, we'll uh, we'll help Sweden kick off their Euros campaign tonight against Belgium. So it's really interesting, sort of gauging the public mood around Zlatan, who yesterday said in in typically modest fashion. I think in my age, you cannot think future. You think present, even if I'm the past, present, and the future. He actually retired. People may remember in 2016 from international football and then returned five years later in 2021 for the Qatar World Cup qualifiers. Uh, Sweden obviously didn't make it, and he also missed the Euros in 2021 with injury. So yeah, he's not played for the national team again for a year now, that's mostly through injury. Uh, he's only played four times for Milan this season after recovering from injury. If Sweden do reach the Euros next summer in Germany, he'll break the Euros goal scoring oldest age record by four years, which kind of shows you um, the level of achievement it would be for a player of his age to, to still be knocking him in at the top level. As Steve Freeth has no doubt already told you, the record for the Euros oldest goal scorer is held by 38-year-old Ivisa Vastic of Austria. So similarly to sort of Cristiano Ronaldo, the hero worship for Zlatan the player is absolutely unquestionable. But there's also, you know, an understandable question, as with Ronaldo, of whether the country should sort of move on, you know, without an ageing star. Anyway, it should be a pretty interesting story. Uh, it should be an interesting game tonight, Sweden against Belgium. Uh, and no doubt Zlatan will be the story, uh, whatever happens. Nice to hear Tim enjoying himself in Sweden. And while Zlatan could make history on Friday night, Cristiano Ronaldo already has, scoring twice on his 197th international appearance against Liechtenstein on Thursday. Nick Zlatan. Returning to international football, aged 41, he was probably never going to leave it where, where he did where he did previously and always going to come back at some point. It, this is just him, isn't it? It's vintage Zlatan. Yeah, with, with anyone else, you would say, why? Why are you still bothering? Why are you still bothering to play at 41? You know, you've made, you, you, you've made your money, you've won loads of trophies, just let someone else have a go. But it is Zlatan. He can't, it's, it's like he can't bear anyone else being the centre of attention. So he has to kind of muscle his way back in. And it's kind of not as if Sweden are sort of crying out for the, the old saviour to come back. Um, they've got some pretty good young players and they didn't make the World Cup, but they, you know, they're still, uh, they've still got some good players who maybe they could benefit from, from having, uh, you know, an older Zlatan there to, to mentor them. But, um, it's, it's not like they were crying out for, for him to, to return and save them, I don't think. No, I quite like that he's returned, George. I mean, he may, maybe that he's in Isaac having a relatively good time in the Premier League, scoring a couple of goals and thinking, well, I'm not having that, someone else being the main <laughs> man for, for Sweden. But also, they didn't qualify for the last tournament. 
and I respect the fact that he's gone back in to do the qualifying rather than come back and, and, and play in the actual tournament itself should they qualify. So at least he's, he's put in the hard yards before. Does he ever put in many hard yards? Like, I get, oh, I get, he, could, he, he could just walk <coughs> back in if they qualify, couldn't he? But he's decided to, to yeah, have a yeah. go at getting to qualify himself as well. I actually respect that. No, I do too. And I think this is kind of what being a footballer is all about, isn't it? I think, you know, all of us who... who the reason why we love football, we've all dreamed of being there. And I think the idea of coming back out of retirement in your early 40s to lead your national side to a Euros, I mean, it's the stuff that kind of children's uh, football books and, you know, games are, are created around these kind of dream fantasies. So yeah, all credit to him. And it's mad how um, he's able to maintain a, a certain level of performance at, at this age. So yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think the, the Euros will be a much funner tournament if, if Zlatan is lining up there. So um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, and I can almost feel the Piers Morgan tweet coming if it hasn't already happened. Ronaldo scoring twice in a record-setting 197th cap, Nick. He's never far from the headlines, is he? Especially in an international break. Yeah, it, I mean, you would question whether why anyone else would keep going, but obviously Ronaldo has this kind of drive to break as many records as, as possible. That was what his record-setting is it record-setting or record-breaking international cap um, Re- record-setting according to producer guy record-setting. There you go. Yeah, a kind of cruel reading of this is that now he's playing in Saudi Arabia. International football is a kind of way to remain relevant. Uh, I suppose, and you know, scoring loads of goals, and he'll probably be there for for the Euros as well. Is the kind of a, a way to do that whilst filling his boots in in the Saudi Arabian League. I mean, let's hope it is record setting for Guy's sake, because as I say, you can't do anything on this podcast in a few weeks' time. We'll all be harking, harking back to the, the time when Guy got the record setting and record breaking. Confused. Steve, Michael O'Neill back in charge of Northern Ireland. They beat San Marino 2 0 with both goals scored by Dion Charles. O'Neill took Northern Ireland to Euro 2016, of course. What are their chances of qualifying this time round? Yeah, they're 10 to 1, Dan, for a. For a top two finish, so they clearly have it, have it to do. They're they are favourites to beat uh, Finland in their next game as well at the at the weekend. I think so. There are you know, chances there to get to get points on the board. And and, and just from a personal level, just to see Michael back uh, in football, I think I think it's great. He had a quite a long spell up here in uh, in Stoke on Trent. You know the way that he, he he steadied the ship and the way that he you know he kind of cleared the decks really at, at, at Stoke. I don't know whether nationally whether that gets enough praise really for the job that he did. Unfortunately didn't start this season particularly well and um the inevitable happened as it does in football manager these days the shelf life he had, he, and he had a, a few years at Stoke he was here in, in 2019 and um as as most people say about Michael O'Neill an absolute great bloke a gent and um I wish him all the best he, he looks refreshed and good luck to Northern Ireland but they are they are 10 to 1 to, to finish in the top two which is a, a bit of a, a bit of an ask but as we know with Northern Ireland they enjoy beating the odds. Yeah, they enjoy playing at Windsor Park as well. They play Finland on Sunday, but Denmark are also in their group. So it is a little bit of a tough one for Northern Ireland, but good good luck even to Michael O'Neill. Wales begin life without Gareth Bale on Saturday away to Croatia and Aaron Ramsey has been reappointed as captain 11 years after initially being given the armband under Gary Speed. Nick, it was a little bit of a sad end to the Wales golden generation. In a way, is is this the end of the golden generation? Seeing them them trudge off the pitch against England in in Qatar, it did kind of feel like that that was the end of a group and it's time for a refresh. Yeah, and that tournament was probably kind of a a year or two too late for those sort of players like Bale and I suppose, you know, Joe Allen players like that, a little bit too late for them to really 
make any kind of serious impact and you're right it was it was quite sad but in many ways you kind of you you wanted them all to just kind of retire after Euro 2016 because that was you know the go go out on a this this kind of incredible high that realistically Wales weren't were probably never going to kind of match again but yeah I mean they've got some good young players Brennan Johnson obviously but there's it feels like there's going to be quite a lot of pressure on on someone like Johnson to fill that attacking role that Bale and not just the, the attacking role the there was obviously the kind of inspirational leadership and the fact that he would not quite get them out of trouble but he would be the one to kind of pop up with some kind of ludicrous free kick or um incredible goal to push them on so they, they haven't got maybe the, the the toughest group in the world but you would think that Croatia and, and Turkey are ahead of them uh, in sort of the, the chances of qualifying for the Euros in, in that group. Does the Euro format of 24 teams enhance their chances of continuing appearances at major tournaments, George? Yeah, it, it does. I mean, it's it's interesting looking at the, the squad this time around for this new era as it's being built, you know, post-Bale, post-Allen. And I know a fair bit about the guys who've been called up um, being mostly EFL players. You know, Nathan Broadhead is a, a striker who um, is currently, well, who's, a, who's an Ipswich who um, did very good things at, at Wigan previously. He's a live wire and a goal scorer, but he's a League One striker. Um, Ollie Cooper is having a good season at Swansea, by no means one of Swansea's best players. Jordan James is a talented player, very, very young from Birmingham. Um, you know, these are very much like EFL talents who aren't yet by any stretch kind of the, the best in class. That looks to me, I mean, they're promising players and, and they could go on to have similar careers, I guess, to someone like Joe Allen, but... Right now, it seems to me like there's a, a kind of big drop-off in quality. And, you know, if, if Rob Page were able to get them to, to the Euros, given the players they've lost and given who, who he's having to, to recruit, I think it would be a, 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 an amazing job well done. Yeah, I really wanted Paul Mullin to, to get the call-up for Wales yeah. close according to David Ornstein wasn't it that would have been absolutely incredible in Wales's group you have Croatia Turkey Latvia and Armenia and the top two in each group of course qualify for the tournament now talking of this group this is the big one now Armenia v Turkey on Saturday Nick I understand you're working on a piece about it yeah uh, and, and trust me it is definitely uh, more interesting than it sounds um, <laughs> not a on, in a footballing sense not a kind of absolute clash of the titans but to be you know incredibly glib about it Turkey uh, and Armenia do not get on they basically haven't had the diplomatic relations between the two countries which they share a land border um, haven't existed for basically the existence of Armenia since 1991 and uh, this is only the second time that they've played each other and it all it all kind of goes back to some kind of horrific events in the the early part of the 20th century, which I'm, I, I'm not going to kind of describe on this podcast because it, it would just be too glib and I could sort of urge people to do some background reading, perhaps in my piece that I think is going out tomorrow. But yeah, it, it is not a enormously significant game in a purely footballing sense, but in a like a geopolitical historical sense, it is one of the I think biggest um, big, will be one of the biggest rivalries in in Europe, and the importance of this game in a in a broader sense, particularly to people of Armenia, is is um, going to be I mean is is, is going to be absolutely massive, and uh, yeah, I doubt it will be a classic for again from a footballing standpoint, but interesting in a kind of broader sense. Does sound like peak Nick Miller on the athletic to me. <laughs> We're going to end this part with the trivia then. I've looked at the question. It is a difficult one this week from producer Guy. 
So the question here is, eight players have played nine or more games in European Championships for England. Who are they? So this is in the tournaments themselves. So eight players have played nine or more games in European Championships for England. Who are they? I'll start off with the obvious one. I think it might Harry Kane. Take a bow for that. That's unbelievable. Got us off to a, got us off to a, a good start there. Has anyone else got any any answers? Uh, Rooney. Take a bow for that. Nice. That's unbelievable. I think I've got another one. John Stones. This might just be the worst feeling of all. <laughs> <laughs> no, he must be close. He must be close, John. I was confident in that one. Well, we've got close. to think, given the the run in the last Euros, anyone who was in that squad who played significantly before. Yeah, did he play that much in the? Well, I thought he played in in two thousand and sixteen. Carl Walker. Take a bow for that. That's unbelievable. Thank you, uh, Raheem Sterling. Take a bow. Oh, for that. Nick. That's unbelievable. So, what, what we all know is that four. Yeah, it's four. Uh, Jordan Henderson. Yeah, it's this four. might just be. The worst feeling of all. That's a shame. I mean, sure. Goal in 2016. It wasn't Pickford, was it? It, wasn't it was Pickford, hard. I think it was in goal in. in no, it won't be him. It won't be him. Minutes, won't be him overall. Then. I mean, someone with like longevity must still like a uh... Gerard. Take a bow for that. Oh. That's unbelievable. Rio. This might just be the worst feeling. We rushed of in. Steve, sing this out. I, I didn't understand the question. Sorry. What was, what was it? <laughs> As in European, as in the European Championship fight, as in the games at the final, in the tournament, in the tournament itself. Tournament. Oh, okay. Lamp- Lampard is he there? No. This might just be no. the worst feeling of all. <laughs> Sol Campbell. This might just be the worst feeling of all. Turning off here. I've had a stinker. It's got to be from '96 onwards, basically, hasn't it? Because England. Seaman. This might just be the worst feeling of all. This is hard. Would there, would there been any, uh, um, Gary Neville. Ashley Cole. This might just be the worst feeling of all. Ashley Cole. Was there anyone else who played in 96, 2000 and 2004? That was where I, that was where I never yeah, came that's from. that's... was Tony... Oh, I don't no. want to say the name out loud in case I get the... Yeah, your player... I don't think what you were about to say is correct. <laughs> did, 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 well, I was thinking, did he play in 92, though? Uh, you, you weren't saying who I thought you were saying. Oh, OK, fine. Uh, this might just be... The worst feeling of all. That was dreadful, sorry. That was was poor. One more guess each we've got, we've been told by the producer. How many games is there in the the 96 of you? Normally for us, four. (laughs) Five or six in the... Normally it's three group games and we're out, isn't it? I'm not convinced this is correct, but I'm going to throw it in there anyway. Tony Adams. Take a bow! Brilliant. That was what I was going to say. In is the because I think he, he might have been in the squad in '92. He's good at pinching. There he goes. Look, he's is disgusted. I, I heard you say Tote, and then Nick, in, yeah, your, in your defense, exactly. thank you. Yeah, he's Dan's got history of, of, of doing this in his quiz. Don't worry, Dan Dave Nugent Darbel, uh, Bardell. There, yeah, <laughs> exactly. You were guessing, yeah. you were guessing Dave Nugent there, no, 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 no <laughs> just, just to clarify, yeah. Um, David Batty, this might just be the worst feeling of all 96, 2000. We've been given a clue. We still can't get it. Ints. This might just be the worst feeling of all. No, no good. Oh, I think I know it. Go on. Is it Teddy Sheringham? This might just be <laughs> the worst feeling of all. Well, we've, we've guessed. We must have named every player that's ever played for England now. So have the answers 
here. So we have Tony Adams, which we got correct. Steven Gerrard, Harry Kane, Gary Neville. Oh, no. Alan Shearer. Right. Did we not say that? I didn't know what's that Shearer. Okay. <laughs> That's an absolute disaster. I thought someone had said that. Raheem Sterling, Wayne Rooney and Kyle Walker. How did we not say Alan, Alan Shearer? You, after all he did, especially in Euro 96, that is a... I didn't. I, I didn't watch Euro '92. I was only athletic contributor as well. I know that is that is disappointing. Good quiz again from Guy. Tripped us up. We have to fly her, but then we we fell away brutally. Next, even though the Premier League is on pause, there is still plenty to discuss. Take a bow for that. That's unbelievable. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. Right then, before we continue with the podcast, please remember that if you are going to have a bet this weekend, make sure that you do so responsibly. George, you've got some helpful tips on how to make sure that we do just that. Yeah, it's important to us that the listeners of this podcast are in control of their gambling. This is a podcast for those who are 18 years of age and older. Please ensure that you are only staking what you can afford to lose and do visit BeGambleAware.org for any information to ensure that you're gambling responsibly. So that's the international football discussed. And even though there's no Premier League action for another week, there's still plenty going on, especially on the managerial front. We've got the Antonio Conte situation at Tottenham. It seems to be ending in acrimonious fashion. Steve, what's the market saying about Spurs' next manager? I presume Conte is way down. Yeah, well, when the announcement happens about Conte leaving, which everyone tells me it's it's, it's, a, it's a matter of time, we will have a market... Instead of a caretaker, we're going to be who's in charge at the start of next season. Basically, the 1st of September, for argument's sake. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a more competitive field. Uh, and I'd be interested to you guys, actually, who you think will be in charge permanently of Spurs next season. Because um, I found this pretty tough to, to price up. And, of course, the, the Nagelsmann issue as well, um, with, with him going, allegedly, as well. So with him being available, I presume, with what's happening at Munich and, and, and Tuchel coming out the betting, who originally was one of the favourites, actually... Ruben Amorin currently would be the one that I'd, I'd made favourite around five to one. Clearly doing doing very good things with Pochettino second best around six to one. With Luis Enrique also at six to one, and then you've got like Roberto De Zerbi at eight to one, um, and Glasner as well at eight to one. So I'll be pretty honest with you. I've picked a load of names and just put the prices next to them out of a hat. In all honesty, what, what about Nagelsmann? Yeah, it, I, I think he'll be favourite. George, I would say. Um, I think around I think... around seven because people will put two and two together yeah. automatically. Personally, I don't I don't think that'll happen. Pochettino, people might think he'll go back. I personally think he'll be the Real Madrid manager next season, so I'll be quite happy to to lay him. I think unless something amazing happens like 
Madrid, of course, they've got a history of winning the Champions League, but I think they'll be um I think they'll be looking for a manager and they'll part and part ways with your favourite manager, George uh, Ancelotti. <laughs> uh, there's Conte So in there, there's Thomas Frank in there, Gallardo, Fonseca. Even Williams still makes an appearance in there. It's an absolute lottery. So, guys, give me a guide. Give me a guide. I'm waiting for George to put Chris Wilder forward. No, mate, he's, he's doing a decent job at Watford. Although, end, end of the season, he's available again. It's a short-term deal. It's, I'm looking forward to seeing the old Potter versus Ancelotti uh, two-legger, though. Um, it should be interesting. But the issue that Spurs have is the Real Madrid job, basically, where the elite managers who would maybe be managers they can target, namely Nagelsmann and... Um, Pochettino, as Steve alluded to, I, I just don't think would commit to the Spurs job with the possibility of getting the, the Madrid job in a matter of weeks or months. Um, so for that reason, I think you know it probably is quite likely we're going to see Ryan Mason take over till the end of the season and then Spurs trying to appoint someone in the summer, which, you know, um, who would have a better idea of, of who will be available, except for Luis Enrique, of course, who there's absolutely no chance he would be becoming Real Madrid manager. He's out of work. I think he is criminally underrated as a manager as well. I think for whatever reason, people don't give him the, you know, the, the credit that he deserves as a tactician. Um, and I think he'd be a really smart appointment too. You know, it's easy to say they'd be appointing someone who's won a lot as a player. But um, as we know, Spurs have appointed managers who have about a million trophies between them. And yet when they come to Spurs, things unravel pretty quickly. But I do think Enrique, or sorry, Luis Enrique, um, is someone who they should um, maybe be targeting if that job does come up. I'm going to let Nick go before me because I don't want to be accused of stealing what, what, <laughs> what he says, Nick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Nagelsmann makes a, a, a lot of sense. You kind of wonder whether he would... Say so if the reports are correct, and it sounds like they are, that he's been you know left by Munich, leaving his probably his dream job and going straight into another one. You kind of worry about that from an emotional standpoint, from um, from Spurs' perspective, kind of like a luxury Dean Smith after leaving. Oh, just, I was thinking. <laughs> oh, yeah. here we go. Oh, yeah, you were thinking straight. that. Of course, you were. I'm now, I'm now kind of. I'm now uh, preemptively stealing Dan's. I don't. I'd have never said it because I'd have been accused of making everything yeah. about Villa, so I couldn't have said it. I stepped in. Um, the other one is uh, is quite interesting. Is Sergio Conceicao at um, at Porto who? Is has done a very good job there, despite the inevitable um, thing of Porto having to sell their best players every every year. I've seen sort of suggestions that uh, Spurs are kind of quite keen on him, without kind of wishing to go over again what what George has, has said. I suspect that Luis Enrique is going to be the favourite. Uh, I know that uh, Fabio Prati likes him. It's just a question of whether. Pratchy is allowed to make the decision with Daniel Levy kind of looming over him. Do we think that's the end of the managerial changes this season? Surely there's no one else in the Premier League that can can lose their job. Oh, do do not do not estimate, uh, underestimate Nottingham Forest that they. You okay. Know, you know, no uh, another defeat for um, for Steve Cooper, and I think he may well be on his way. But um, but who knows. What about Brendan Rodgers? Do you think he could be under a little bit of pressure? Do you think? Do we can't, think? They can't afford to sack him, can they? No, they still can't. They both of them. He no. can't. He he won't walk away, and they won't sack him. So they're, mm. they're together until the end Good. of May. Yeah, let's hope he stays yeah. forever. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to the weekend preview here on the Athletic Football Podcast. Mm. 
Now, with no six scores challenge this week, we thought we'd take a wider look at the Premier League ahead of its return and look to predict what could be to come because we've obviously proved over the years that we're really, really good at doing that. So the title race to start, Arsenal are eight points clear of Man City with 10 games to go, but Manchester City do have a game in hand. Steve, what's the market saying? Yeah, Arsenal are favourites, but maybe not as short as some people might think. With such a, Is that the first time they've been favourites, Steve? No, they've been over the, oh, last, okay. the last month, I would say, but... Even even though they have a such a long lead, they're only eight to thirteen to do that with with Manchester City at eleven to eight, and again that might might surprise a few people. Fixtures play a big part of this as well. Some of the some of the games that they've you know they've got coming up as well. Obviously City away, and then they've got um, games against Chelsea, Newcastle, and, and and Brighton as well. So I suppose being out the Europa League is also. It's also a big help for them. But City, of course, have, have history on their side of, of, of winning the Premier League. They know what it takes. Their fixtures are also a lot easier, Dan. So that's why there's not a huge, huge gap between the two sides, despite the points different currently. Well, only Liverpool in 2018-19 have had 69 points or more after 28 games and not won the Premier League from this position. Also, Manchester City is still fighting the Champions League as well and, and the FA Cup, so they've got a couple of more competitions than Arsenal have, as Steve mentioned. A few players have pulled out of international football this window. Saliba out the France squad. Erling Haaland withdrew from Norway and no Marcus Rashford for England. Of course, Manchester United are still in the hunt for a treble. Anything to worry about there, George? My hunch is that it's probably a good thing that these players will have a nice rest. And, you know, it's no surprise that it's three fairly important players for their sides who, um, yeah, had injuries at this at this disappointing time. So, um, yeah, I don't think... I'll be very surprised if Erling Haaland isn't <laughs> lining up uh, when the Premier League starts again next weekend. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Of course, English clubs are still in Europe. Manchester City face Bayern Munich in the Champions League quarterfinals. And then we've got Chelsea v Real Madrid. And then the two could actually end up facing each other in the last four, Nick. I've just said there about Manchester City fighting in three fronts and Arsenal only fighting on one. That That is a slight advantage to Arsenal, isn't it? Especially given at times we've, we've questioned Arsenal's depth. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, they'll have the kind of gaps between games that uh, City won't have. City obviously are kind of used to to dealing with that and they've they have won the Premier League very handily when going kind of deep in the Champions League before. So it's not necessarily that um, you know, City will be burnt out by by the end of May, more that uh, as you say, Arsenal's relatively shallow squad, although, you know, obviously with Gabriel Jesus coming back and Andrew Trossard playing so well, they've got a number of options up front, certainly. But yeah, it's despite every kind of instinct in my body suggesting that Arsenal are going to be Arsenal and kind of somehow may have found some kind of creative way to make a mess of this, they still do are you know, still half kind of favourites to win the title and I think they probably will. Yeah, Manchester United on the European front. They've got Sevilla in the Europa League quarterfinals and they'll face the winner of Sporting v Juventus if they do manage to negotiate that tie. It's all going off in the relegation battle still. It's so, so tight. I'd, I'd hate to call who is going to go down, but I think we're going to be made to do it. It's gone from five points separating the bottom nine teams to four points after last weekend's results. Steve Southampton, Kind of felt a little bit marooned near, near the bottom under Nathan Jones, but Ruben Sells has, has picked them back up and they've picked up a few handy results and not as dead certs to go down as perhaps we would have thought a month or so ago. Recency bias, of course. Yeah, we love the recency bias and um, bingo uh, fans would be ticking that off the list, Dan. I know it was a bit late in the show to to Left mention to mention that, but a big point against Spurs, 
Theo Walcott on the scene. You know, he's, uh, who'd have thought it? A goal and assist, I think he, he got there. 90 minutes as well under his belt. And I suppose they might be looking to, to his experience, Dan. But they are the current favourites to go down currently at, at, at two to five. They're a, a shorter price to be relegated than they were after getting that point against Spurs. And um, unfortunately for them, they've played more games than their rivals, a lot of their rivals down there as well. So that's what they are, the shortest price. And Sellers, a decent record under under him, uh, lost two, one, two, drawn two as well. So you're looking around at all the, all the rivals, Bournemouth are, their South Coast rivals are, are four to seven down. So, and then Forrest at Evens, I'm sure Nick will touch upon them shortly. So those are the three that we think currently will go down. But it's a, it's great for us it's it's still fairly competitive and the points market that we do the the points of the side finishing in 18th is currently favoring under 35 and a half so we still think it's going to be a low total as we touched on last week all these teams playing each other it's going to be a fascinating end to the season yeah nick let's talk about nottingham forest how concerned are you how worried are you at the moment uh pretty worried Uh, I i think in the first couple of weeks of january it seemed like the so the theory at the start of the season with all the kind of new signings is that Forrest just needed to kind of get to the World Cup break. We're in some sort of decent, reasonable shape, in touch with you know the the teams uh, around them, and then that would almost be a kind of second preseason where Steve Cooper would work with those players and he would kind of figure out some kind of cohesive unit with them, which turned out to be true. And in the first couple of weeks of January, um, just a couple of brilliant results. Um, the drew with Chelsea, um, beat Southampton, which doesn't kind of sound that impressive, but it's the only away game that Forrest have, uh, have won all season and played really well in that game. And then there were a number of injuries. Um, and obviously, because Forrest can't help themselves, they signed another seven players. So it was almost that Cooper was back to square one where he had to, again, figure out how to make sense of all these players. Last few weeks, he's sort of chopped and changed a little bit, sometimes out of necessity. There was that um, astonishing 10 seconds against Fulham when both centre-backs pulled their uh, hamstrings um, in separate incidents, but uh, but within 10 seconds of each other, uh, which to to say the least, it didn't help. Um, some of the injured players are now kind of on their way back, but it still feels like he's trying to make sense of all the kind of options he's got available to him. And yeah, at the moment, the, the, this, this is one of those things that, you, you know, if you you speak to us again in a week, then you will get a different answer. But at the moment, I think Forest are, as, as the odds um, reflected, the, the Bournemouth, Southampton and Forest are probably the most likely to go down. But, you know, it's Forest against Wolves in the first game back from the, um, from the international break. And, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen in that one. I'm going to go Bournemouth, Southampton. I'm actually going to go Leicester. If anything happens to Madison... They're, they're not not the same team and they're, they're struggling as is at the moment. George, I'll come to you next. Pick your three, please. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one with both Bournemouth and Sampton having kind of isolated results. And you have to wonder if that's going to be enough to keep them up with West Ham and Leicester both down there too. I mean, I, I think Forrest, I'm afraid to say, uh, in present company, I think it will go down. Um, I think because of the, you know, they've got the hardest games left of anyone uh, in the Premier League left from now. And, you know, with the uncertainty around Steve Cooper, you know, I personally think he should be able to, he's entitled to take Forrest down. Um, I don't think sacking him would do too much. Um, so I'm going to say Bournemouth, Forrest and Southampton uh, with Leicester and West Ham just about squeaking out. Although I still think um, as per the bet three six five prices, they'll be the ones I'll be backing given the odds. Steve, your three. Southampton, Bournemouth, and uh, and Leicester. 
I think, Dan. I got to the yeah, some, some big games coming up. Palace away, then your boys, Bournemouth uh, at home before they have uh, Manchester City away as well. V- very brave of, of, of Rodgers to change a goalie as well at that uh, at this stage. But the you know the lads up top are just massively undershooting their XG as well. And and I know you mentioned Madison Dan as well. Good to see Harvey Barnes doing a lot better in front of goal as well. Um, but I think it could be. Uh, yeah, a bad into the season for Leicester City. And no one said Crystal Palace, who've obviously replaced their manager in the last week. They're five so to one, Dan. They, they're five to five one. To one. It, yeah, they're still. It's they've been in twelfth place as 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 we say. Um, you know they haven't won a game since since twenty twenty three. But Roy goes in there. Twenty twenty two. Twenty twenty two. Yeah, well, I was going to say not won a game in twenty twenty three. But yeah, I suppose with all the fixtures that they've got coming up, Dan as well. I think they have the best uh, the best running and our, our points total thinks. I know it's very easy to say they just need to win three games. But you think the calibre of sides that they come up against, they might be able to do that. Hence the price. People still think that of all the prices, that the value one is for Crystal Palace to go down. But yeah, we don't think so. Well, that is it from us here at the Weekend Preview. Chappers is going to be back on Monday here on the Athletic Football Podcast. But until then, enjoy your weekend. Enjoy the international football. And thanks for listening. The Athletic.